0: The Christian life is full of tensions. The Bible itself is full of tensions. And we don't like tension as people, as human beings. We tend to want to release the tension. We tend to want to let go of one side of the tension at the expense of the other. If you think about holding a rubber band in your hand and stretching it out... There's a certain point where you don't want to pull any more on one side or the other. And if you do, well, the tension gets too much and it might break and snap and, well, hurt your fingers. And tensions can do that. They can cause pain. But I'm convinced that when we think about the tensions of the Christian life, when we think about tensions we see in the Bible, God intends for us to hold those tensions at the proper place. And I know many of you are scientifically minded, particularly in the physical sciences around here. And if you think about tension in the physical world, tension in the realm of mechanics and the things that we build, tension is very, very important. It's a reality that we deal with that is necessary for things to work right. And if you don't have the proper tension in place, the machine that you've built won't work right. Even within our own body, there are certain things that are built in tension that if the tension is loosened, lessened, or broken, your body won't work right. And I'm convinced that the same thing is true when we read our Bibles and when we seek to live the Christian life. Let me show you a little bit of what I mean. We get a bit of this tension in the story of Gideon. The story of Gideon presents to us a major tension. And that tension has to do with the question, who gets the credit? Who gets the credit for the victory that Gideon brings to the people of Israel? And we can think about that question more broadly. Who gets the credit when something good happens in your life? Who gets the credit when you experience growth in your Christian life? And I want you to see this tension really clearly in the story of Gideon this morning. And I want to take us back to the earlier parts of the story. If you remember, Gideon is one of these judges that we've been looking at in the book of Judges that God has chosen to use to bring deliverance to his people. People of Israel are being oppressed by the Midianites at this point, and God has chosen Gideon to bring relief to the people. If you go back to Judges chapter 6, if you've got a Bible, I do advise that you open it or turn it on or find it. Uh, But if not, just listen carefully and you'll hear what's there in the Scriptures. But if you go back to the earlier part of Judges chapter 6 and the early part of the story, you'll remember that an angel had appeared to Gideon. God had sent this angel to commission Gideon, to call him and to show him that he's going to be the one, the man who's going to bring relief to the people. But I want you to see how this commission is really a puzzling commission. So if you look at Judges 6.14 in a moment, we'll see this tension in place, and let's puzzle over it for a moment. The angel says to Gideon, Judges 6.14, "...go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian." Now, if we stop right there, it sounds like the angel, on behalf of God, is telling Gideon, save Israel in your own strength. That's just what it sounds like and what it seems to say. If you've been a Christian for a very long time or you've been attending church many times, you've probably heard from the pulpit repeatedly that living the Christian life or seeking to obey God in your own strength is a bad thing, right? You're not supposed to do that. And yet, it seems that that's exactly what the angel is telling Gideon to do. Save Israel in your own strength, in this might of yours. But then we get the rest of the verse. The angel says on behalf of God, do not I send you. And so then the question that we're left with as we read that verse is, okay, so who's really saving Israel here? Who's doing the work? Who's involved in this? And who gets the credit ultimately if Gideon succeeds? Who will get the credit? Let me press on this tension a little bit more. If you go back to Judges chapter 2, we're going to get a summary statement that kind of tells us about the cycle that uh, that unfolds repeatedly in the book of Judges. And in the section that talks about God bringing relief through a judge, we get this picture of dual responsibility. And that's where the tension really rests, dual responsibility. If you look at Judges 2, verse 16, the summary tells us, "...then Yahweh raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them." So Judges 2, 16 says that the judges saved the people, Right? The judges, Yahweh raised them up, and they are the ones who save the people. Well, then skip down two verses to chapter 2, verse 18. Then Yahweh... Sorry, verse 18. Whenever Yahweh raised up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. So, Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who saves the people, and yet... Two verses earlier, it's the judge who saves the people. So what's going on here? Do we have a picture of this dual responsibility where you've got, well, the judge puts in his part and God puts in his part and, and then they have success? And is it a 50-50 kind of thing? The judge puts in 50% of the work, God puts in 50% of the work, and then it works. Or is it a 60-40 kind of arrangement? God puts in 60%, the judge puts in 40%. Or is it like a 90-10 kind of arrangement, where God puts in 90% of the effort and the judge puts in 10%? Or is it a 99-1 arrangement, where God puts in 99% of the effort and the judge puts in 1% of the effort? Is that how this is going? Or, is it that ultimately, God is the one who gets 100% of the credit when success comes? I think we'll see a little bit more clearly in the Gideon story in particular, that that's the arrangement. That's the way this is going to work. And I'm going to suggest to you that that's the way the Christian life works, too. The effort and involvement of Gideon in this story is absolutely necessary, but it is not decisive. The effort and labor and involvement of Gideon is absolutely necessary to bring about God's, the accomplishment of God's purposes here, but it is not decisive. And therefore, God's decisive work brings him all the glory, all the credit, and Gideon gets none And that's the way it's supposed to be. So let's see how this unfolds in the story of Gideon. If you'll return to chapter 6 with me. If you remember the story, after this angel appears to Gideon and he has his commission where the angel tells him, God is going to save the people of Israel through you. Remember Gideon had a little bit of an argument with him about his qualifications for that task. And then once Gideon kind of accepted, okay, we're going to do this, ...and built an altar dedicated to Yahweh... ...there was still one more thing that needed to happen. That's what we looked at last week. We got this kind of side story almost... ...where Gideon had to deal with the internal problem of idolatry. Idolatry not only broadly in the people of Israel... ...but idolatry in his own home, in his own family... ...and ultimately in his own heart. And Gideon had to deal with that... ...before he could be ready to deal with the external enemy of the Midianites... And so last week we saw how he pulled down the altar of Baal, or Baal, don't get hung up on the pronunciation, okay? Baal, or Baal, he pulls down the altar and destroys the idolatry of his own family, and now he's ready to go against the external enemy, the Midianites, He's offered a burnt offering on a new altar dedicated to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he's received atonement for his own sin, his own idolatry. And this is where we remember that Gideon is part of the problem. He's not some hero that's special apart from the people of Israel. He's an idolater just as much as the rest of the people are. But now we're going to see the conflict with Midian unfold. And we're going to look at a very long passage this morning. And I'd like to read the whole thing before you. So... If you're following along in your Bible, hang with me. We're going to read a very long passage. If you're not following along in your Bible, I challenge you to hang with me even closer. You've got to listen really careful. But I want you to see the whole story before we dive into the details. So we're picking up in Judges chapter 6, verse 33. We'll read all the way through chapter 7 and into chapter 8, verse 3 to get the story in full. So here we go, Judges chapter 6, verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went out to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said." And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. Yahweh said to Gideon, "'The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand.' Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And Yahweh said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And Yahweh said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And Yahweh said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night Yahweh said to him, "'Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah your servant.' And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold... A man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, "'Arise, for Yahweh has given the host of Midian into your hand.' And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, "'Look at me and do likewise.' "...when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for Yahweh and for Gideon." So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the, the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, Yahweh set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army." And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mechola by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan." So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beifberah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zaib. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Za'eb they killed at the winepress of Zaib. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Za'eb to Gideon across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zaib. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So, fun story to read. You get to see the victory of God on display quite clearly here. But lots of things going on on the sidelines along the way. So let's look and see what we can draw out from this story. If you go back to the opening, verses 33 to 35... We see the assembling of the armies, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east have gathered together as a kind of a coalition. And it seems that this is their annual raid of the people of Israel. If you remember back to the beginning of chapter 6, the way that the Midianites oppressed the people of Israel was by coming into the land during harvest time and stealing all their crops. And so it seems like they're just doing what they've been doing for the past seven years. But they don't know that there's something different this time. Gideon has been chosen to stand against them. And so we see the Spirit clothing Gideon here. The Spirit clothes Gideon in verses 34 and 35. Now, when we see the Spirit's involvement in the Old Testament, and the book of Judges in particular, we see him coming upon an individual for a limited time... To equip him or empower him for a specific task, and then he's gone. And the spirit comes upon Gideon here, and the images of clothing think of that metaphor. The spirit, the spirit encompasses him, overcomes him like a cloak, wraps himself around Gideon on the outside, and equips him to do what? Well, the next thing we read is the spirit clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. OK? So, the Spirit has empowered Gideon to blow a shofar. Not very impressive. Did Gideon need some musical ability to blow the shofar, and the Spirit has provided that? Did Gideon need some extra lung capacity to blow the shofar really, really loudly? Probably not. But what comes next is probably the significance of the Spirit empowering Gideon, and it has very little to do with Gideon himself. Instead, the Spirit has worked on Gideon in such a way that the people respond to him. Think about this. Gideon is not a very impressive figure at this point in the story. We've seen him filled with doubt and filled with fear. He's argued with the angel about what he's going to do. He's expressed unbelief at every turn, and thats we're not done with that yet. He's not a very impressive figure. He described himself as the weakest of the weakest clan in Israel, And so, Gideon is not one who at least naturally would commend himself as a general to command thousands of the people of Israel. Instead, the Spirit must do something so that the people will actually follow him. And so, that seems to be the significance of the Spirit's involvement at this moment. Gideon summons the troops. He blows the shofar so that his own clan, the Abiezrites, hear and then they respond. And then he sends messengers out to the other northern tribes, Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they come out to follow him. And we'll see later in the story that 32,000 men responded. Why did they respond? Well, it seems they responded because of the Spirit's work here. That's the significance of the Spirit's movement in this place, so that Gideon suddenly is attractive. He's followable, if you will the spirit has worked here and the weird thing that we're going to see is that of those 32,000 most of them are not going to stick around most of them are not actually going to be involved in the deliverance of the people of Israel and yet and yet it's important that they were gathered in the first place the whittling down of the army that we're going to see in just a few minutes magnifies the glory of God and ensures that he is the one who gets credit for this great victory and not the soldiers. And so their presence here at the beginning, only to be dismissed, is actually significant to the story and significant to giving God all of the credit. So he gathers these forces here initially. They come, they respond and they follow him, and they're ready to fight. And so we would expect that the story would then unfold and say how they then engaged in battle. But no, we've got more to deal with Mr. Gideon here and his fear, doubt, and unbelief. Verses 36 to 40 is probably the the most famous part of the Gideon story, the, the story of the fleece, where Gideon tests God. And so we see this story, and it's often brought up in discussions of kind of seeking out and discerning God's will. Sometimes Christians will say, you know, I've got to decide what I'm going to do in this situation. And then they think of the Gideon story, and they think, well, I'll put out a fleece. And what they mean by that is, I'll create this kind of obscure, random, situational if-then statement. So think about maybe a a single young woman who's hoping that a particular young man will come and show interest in her. And so she says something like, God, if he happens to be at this store where I'm going this afternoon, and he happens to notice me, and he happens to say hi to me, then I'll know that it's your will that we're going to be together forever. You heard things like that? You said things like that? And this discussion about seeking God's guidance and seeking God's will gets pulled into this story, but I don't think that's what's going on at all for Gideon. Gideon is not seeking God's will. Gideon is not asking the question, God, what do you want me to do? Or he's not saying, God, I think you might want me to do this, but I need to make sure. And so here's something for you to do that you can prove to me that this is what you want me to do. That's not what Gideon's doing. Look at what Gideon says in these verses Verse 36 again, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Gideon knows what God wants him to do. God has made it very plain. God has said it to him repeatedly at this point. This is not a question of trying to figure out what does God want me to do. He knows exactly what God wants him to do. God has told him. And the one principle that we can take away from this passage that fits in with everything else the Bible teaches, from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, is that God's will is made known by God's Word. God's will is made known by God's Word. When we as followers of Jesus, when we as modern day people are trying to figure out what God wants me to do, we pick up this book. We go to God's Word to find the guidance that we need. You see, God still speaks today through the words printed on these pages. This is the way. If you want to know what God wants you to do, you go here to the words that He's already spoken to you. That is our primary source of guidance for living the Christian life. There's no need and no call and no instruction given to us in the Scriptures to ever do anything like what Gideon does here. Gideon is expressing unbelief here. He's not in any way trying to figure something out about what God wants him to do. Rather, what this shows us about Gideon is that he does not know God. He does not know who God is. This test is about getting God to prove himself to Gideon. The test really has to do with dew, D-E-W. You see it repeatedly in the story. The major feature of the test is about dew and how it manifests itself. Well, dew is a weather phenomenon, right? It's a weather phenomenon. And so from their vantage point, the Canaanite religion, Baal, Is the weather god. Baal is the one who controls the dew. In fact, in their mythology, he has a daughter named Dew. And if you remember, Gideon and his family have been worshiping Baal for who knows how long. That is their practical, lived out theology. That Baal has control over the weather and of dew in particular. And so what I think is going on here is that Gideon is still a little bit afraid of the aftermath of his encounter with Baal previously. If you remember back to the previous story, he pulls down the altar and the people of the city of Ophrah want to see him dead. And then they seem to be looking and waiting, will Baal, the storm god, strike him dead with lightning? Well, that didn't happen in the moment, but Gideon still seems to be concerned about whether Baal might get revenge. And now he sees an army of pagans sitting out in the valley who worship Baal. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east worship Baal. So I think Gideon's still concerned that what he's done under Yahweh, the God of Israel's orders, could be... uh, An affront to Baal, and Baal will get his revenge maybe through this army who follows him and worships him. And so he wants to set his mind at ease to prove that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is actually stronger than Baal. Yahweh is the one who needs to show himself to Gideon because Gideon doesn't know him. Gideon doesn't really see him as he really is. The one true God, the God who has the power not only over the weather but over everything. And so he asks God to prove himself to him. So the question on the table is, is Yahweh really greater than Baal? Can I count on you, God, to protect me from this Midianite army, to give me the victory? Even though you've said you're going to, can I really know that you're stronger than him? That he's not going to get vengeance against me in this situation? And so he puts out this test, who can really control the do? So normally, the expectation would be when you walk out in the morning, there's dew all over the ground. And so he says, hmm, let's change things up a little bit. God, can you... I'm going to lay out a blanket on the ground. And let's, on this threshing floor, this kind of smaller space that's outdoors still, can you cause the all the dew to kind of centralize on the blanket but not be on the ground anywhere? That would be... That would show that you seem to be able to put dew where you want it to go. So let's try that. Done. God didn't have any problem situating the dew. And the way the narrative unfolds here, when Gideon gets up the next morning and he takes the fleece in his hands and he wrings it out and the dew fills a huge bowl of water, I think we're supposed to envision that not only has God done what Gideon asked him to do, he's done it to the extreme in that there is such an amount of dew that totally supersaturates this blanket, maybe even to the point that there's more dew in the blanket than there normally would have been on the whole threshing floor. God has done something way beyond Gideon's test to prove himself. But it's not enough for unbelieving Gideon. It's not enough. And Gideon knows that he's skating on thin ice, He knows that he's doing something sinful in all of this. Because on the next day, he starts, verse 39, Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Please let me speak just once more. He knows that what he's doing deserves God's wrath. What he's doing deserves God's judgment in the moment. He knows this. He does it anyway. He doesn't seem to really be afraid of the judgment that might come. He asks God not to be angry with him. And then he says, let's flip the test. Maybe this is harder in Gideon's mind. If you can make do be all over the threshing floor, but not on the blanket at all, that will prove prove to us something important here. Well, he does. God passes the test with flying colors. Flawless victory here. No concern about God being unable to do what Gideon wants him to do. God does it. And as much as we see Gideon's unbelief here... And you know, if Gideon knew his Bible... I mean, think about this. If Gideon knew his Bible, he would have known that the Mosaic Law specifically forbids testing God. Not only that... He would have known stories from Exodus and Numbers about when the people of Israel did test God, it didn't really go very well for them. God wasn't happy with that, and he did act in judgment when the people of Israel tested him that way. So, Gideon is expressing all kinds of deep unbelief here in this moment. But more than seeing Gideon's unbelief, we need to take a look at God here. We need to see how God... Deals here, And so notice, particularly, God's patience and God's power. They're both on display in this story for us. God's patience with Gideon, he acquiesces to the tests. He meets the terms of the test. He doesn't flare up in anger against Gideon either night. He has told Gideon specifically what to do. He's been very clear about what Gideon needs to do. And Gideon is just stalling and testing, and acting in unbelief. And God doesn't punish him. Marvel at God's patience here. But also see God's power. He has control over the weather. He has control over the dew. He can put it where he wants it. He can put it in the amount he wants it. He can do whatever he wants. And so he demonstrates himself quite effectively here. But there's another thing to notice kind of here in the context. We tend to think about this fleece event as a private matter between Gideon and God. But if you pay attention to the context, this is a public event. Right before the story unfolds here, we find the gathering of the army. And so all of these people, 32,000 Israelite soldiers, are here for this event. And then if you look at the very next line in chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, we're reminded of all the people who were with him. So everybody, the whole army, sees this test. And another reason I think this has to do with Baal in the background is the narrator chooses to remind us of, ba- of, of Gideon's nickname. He ran, seemingly randomly reminds us that he's called Jerubbaal now. Now I think that helps us see that Baal, this conflict with Baal is still in the background of the story. It's still ongoing, at least in Gideon's mind. And so We press on in the story. We begin to get closer to the conflict. Now that Gideon's tested God and God has passed, God is now going to test Gideon. I want you to put yourself in Gideon's sandals for a few minutes and imagine how he would process what happens before his eyes. Yahweh looks out over the army and he says, There's too many people here. I can't do what I want because there's too many people here. And it's not so much an issue of God's inability. God makes that very clear in what He says in verse 2. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Why? How is that the case? Lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now think about this for a minute. you got 32,000 Israelite soldiers... Later in chapter 8, we're going to find out exactly how big this midianite amalekite people of the East coalition is. Uh, They're described as locusts all over the ground here. But later in chapter 8, we're going to find out that their army amounts to about 135,000 soldiers. So the Israelite army is made up of 32,000, and they are outnumbered by well over 100,000 soldiers. And what God is telling us here is that the people of Israel are so twisted in their thinking at this point that if their force of 32,000, which is humanly outmatched, outnumbered significantly, if they won the battle, they would take credit for it. They would say, we did that. That was our power that got us the victory. That tells us something significant about the people of Israel and the way that they think about themselves. And yet, we are going to find that they are just as fearful as Gideon. At least a bulk of them are. So the first test, the first whittling down of the army, takes place simply by determining who's afraid to go to fight. Now this is actually just an enactment of something in the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 8 gives some instruction for the Israelites when they go to war. And God makes an allowance for the Israelite soldiers... Anybody who's afraid gets to go home. And so here, God is just applying that law to this specific battle in this specific situation. And so he says, let them go home if they're fearful and trembling. And 22,000 of them turn and run and go home. Imagine Gideon watching as 22,000, well over two-thirds of his force, turn tail and run because they're afraid. And Gideon, he doesn't qualify. He's probably still filled with fear here too, and so he ought to go home. But God has chosen him. Regardless of his fear, he's got to stick around and lead the force. So he can't go, but 22,000 of them do go. And that means the army is down to 10,000. Imagine Gideon's trembling, his own fear rising up as the army shrinks. And then God speaks again. Gideon's got to be pretty nervous about... God speaking to him at this point. What's he going to say next? Well, it's unpleasant, Gideon. Get ready. Verse 4 The people are still too many. And so then he creates this test uh, to determine who is going to stay and who's going to go now. And I hope as you were reading through, you were a little bit confused as to what's actually going on. Because it is confusing. It's confusing in Hebrew, it's confusing in English, it's just confusing. What's the significance of this test? And I think we need to not dwell so much on, like, what's going on behind the scenes of those who lapped up water like a dog, and what's going on with those who knelt? What's the significance of that? I don't think there is any significance of that. I think God simply said, send them down to drink some water, knowing that people are going to drink water differently, and God's going to take the smaller group. He's going to take the smaller group. And I don't think there's any significance to why one group might have drunk one way and why one group might have drunk another way. It's simply to cut the army down to size. And so the point at the end of the day is we're left to a 300-man force. 300 men are left, and the promise to Gideon is reiterated. Again, God says to him in verse 7, And Yahweh said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped... I will save you. Now, in Hebrew, that you is plural. So, like a good Texan, Yahweh said to Gideon, I will save (laughs) y'all. Y'all. I will save y'all. And give the Midianites into your hand. And that is singular. Your hand, Gideon. You've still got to stand up before the people. You've still got to lead the people. You've still got to be involved. You've still got to put forth effort in all of this, Gideon. You've got to be out front. And I will give the Midianites into your hand. So he receives yet another verbal confirmation of what God is going to do. This is not about what Gideon can do or can't do. This is about what God is going to do. This is a promise. Now we would expect, let's jump in, there's going to be fighting, there's going to be a victory, but no, not yet. God strengthens Gideon here, verses 9 through 15. This is so significant for Gideon. That Verse 9, that same night Yahweh said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. It's a done deal, Gideon. I have given it into your hand. So go, it's time to fight, let's go. But then, before Gideon even has a chance to respond, God keeps speaking in verse 10. But if you are afraid to go down, if you're afraid to do this, Gideon, still, still afraid after all of this, take your servant, Purah. I know you're too scared to go by yourself. Take a companion along and go down to the camp and listen to the chatter. Hear what they're saying down there. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So notice here that Gideon is still fearful. He's still filled with fear. But God initiates dealing with the fear. He doesn't say, you're still fearful. Well, pack it up and go home. He doesn't say, you're still fearful. I'm done with you, Gideon. He says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to strengthen you in your fear. I'm going to keep working with you, Gideon. Graciously, graciously, God addresses Gideon's fear, and he does it with great irony. He says, go on, sneak down to the enemy camp in the middle of the night and listen to the chatter. And he gets gets to the right place, the right time, to hear a person who just had the right dream with a comrade is going to give the right interpretation that has relevance to Gideon specifically. You can marvel for a moment at God's sovereignty orchestrating all of those details. Because he didn't get specific direction. He didn't say, you need to go down this hill and approach this tent right there and make sure that you're listening at this angle. He just says, go down there. And God is the one who ensured he went to the right place at the right time to hear the right conversation And so here's this dream, and it's interpreted to have significance for Gideon's impending victory over the people. And so what we see there is that this dream is having significance for the Midianite army, and it's causing them to be afraid of Gideon. And so God, ironically, uses the Midianites' fear to overcome Gideon's fear. And then we get this marvelous statement in verse 15... Gideon's response to this, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He worshipped. This is the only time in the book of Judges where that word for worship is used of an Israelite worshipping the true God. It's used several other times of Israelites worshipping false gods. But here, for a moment, a fleeting moment, Gideon responds appropriately. Gideon worships and begins to obey. He's ready to take the army, to take the lead, to go down. And the irony of it all is that God spoke to him directly, and that wasn't enough. God acquiesced to his foolish testing, and that wasn't enough. But to hear the words coming from the enemy, that's what did it. And God worked through all of those means to get Gideon to a place where he was ready to do what God wanted him to do in the first place. And so Gideon worships and begins to obey. And I think this is the moment, the moment in the story where we see the faith of Gideon on display. There's been no faith expressed before now. And after this, there's not going to be any either. We would wish, we would hope that Gideon would press on from here and he would just trust the Lord and keep going in faithful obedience. Spoiler alert, that's not where this story is going. And so I think this is the moment where the author to the Hebrews in the New Testament, reading his Old Testament Bible, picks up on the faith of Gideon and is able to list Gideon among the heroes of the faith. And we should see how Weak and broken and incomplete Gideon's faith is, but it's true and genuine faith. And so the author of the Hebrews is able to draw attention to here, where Gideon goes into battle, having worshipped God, trusting Him finally for the victory that's to come. So verses 16 to 23, the victory unfolds. And what's interesting about this is, as you're reading through it, you probably remembered some resonances with the story of the battle at Jericho in the book of Joshua. There were trumpets involved, there wasn't really uh, fighting that was displayed, and God gave a, a miraculous victory. Unlike that story, God doesn't seem to reveal the strategy to Gideon. This seems to be Gideon's strategy. Gideon comes up with the rules of the game here, whereas back in the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, God revealed the details step by step of what Joshua needed to do. Here, it seems that Gideon is coming up with a strategy on his own. So, this is Gideon's strategy to take trumpets and jars and torches, strange weapons for an army. But I want you to see the The way that this is shaped a little bit. And I I don't really know how to think about this. There's a good way to think about it and a less pleasant way to think about it. And I'll give you both and you can make up your mind. Notice at the end of verse 18, the war cry that Gideon instructs the people to say for Yahweh and for Gideon. Now the best to give Gideon the benefit of the doubt. The best way to view this is that Gideon is trying to tie back into the dream and the interpretation, which featured Gideon's name specifically. And so he wants to tap into that fear of Gideon. And so he says, for Yahweh and for Gideon. That's the best way to look at it. I'm a little suspicious that Gideon is actually inserting himself here for a little bit of the credit and a little bit of the glory and I'm suspicious of that because of the way the rest of Gideon's life unfolds. We see Gideon very much self-focused. And maybe the seeds of that are already on view here. I don't, I'm not sure. You make up your own mind about how to view that. But at any rate, the war cry is planned... And then the specific strategy is quite clever. We want to go in the middle of the night watch. So we're talking about probably about midnight at the moment of the changing of the guard. So think about that. You've got men who were posted to watch. They've been standing watch for several hours late into the night. And so they're groggy. And now they're retreating, going back to their tents. And at the same time, you've got the new watch getting up from sleep, also rather groggy, walking up to take their posts. And at that moment, the strike comes. And you've got a hundred soldiers on one side, a hundred soldiers on the other, and a hundred soldiers out front. You've got a mountain in the background so that the Midianite army is kind of pinned in, except they're not, right? 135,000 soldiers versus three hundred lined up around not really surrounded but kind of but at that moment in the middle of the night when it's darkest and the guard is changing they're gonna shatter their jars and they're gonna reveal the torches inside and they're gonna blow their trumpets and they're gonna shout at the top of their lungs a sword what they end up actually shouting is a sword for Yahweh and for Gideon and that ties perhaps back into their dream as well And so they're shouting, there's a smashing of jars, there's these torches. And can you imagine this just utter confusion that that produces in that moment for the Midianite, Amalekite, and people of the East, soldiers down there in the valley. So they're up high, and the echoing that all of that noise produces. The lights are suddenly on, and there's all this racket going on. And so, ironically... The Israelites don't actually have any swords. They cry out, a sword for Yahweh and for Gideon, but they're not carrying swords. The swords that end up winning the battle are the Midianites' own swords. And the narrator, always pay attention to the narrator. He gives us the clue here for who needs to get the credit for what's happened in verse 22. When they blew the 300 trumpets, Yahweh... Set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. God causes the Midianites to destroy themselves and to run away. And Yahweh should get all of the credit for this victory. And that was the issue. Why was the army whittled down to 300? So that Israel wouldn't boast over God and say that their own hand delivered them. So instead, the narrator tells us Yahweh is the one who does this. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one who gets the victory and gets the credit. Now, from this, we get kind of a little appendix, or uh, some details about the mop-up operation, if you will. Verses 24 on through chapter 8, verse 3, we're we're introduced to the people of Ephraim who were not called out to battle originally. That becomes a problem for them, at least. It's curious that every time we read about Ephraim in the book of Judges, it's not good. They are not painted with a very good light in the book of Judges. I mean, nobody is. But they especially look really bad all the time. And it's going to get worse for them. Just heads up on that. So he calls the men of Ephraim out to kind of guard the escape routes over the waterways. And so they come out and they guard the waterways and they end up capturing the two princes of Midian. And then so they capture them and execute them summarily. Cut off their heads and carry their severed heads across the Jordan River to show Gideon, look what we did. And then they have a little tiff. With Gideon himself. It looks like it's gonna be Ephraim versus Midian, but then it's Ephraim versus Gideon here. They wanna fight with him a bit. And so in verse 1 of chapter 8, they approach him very roughly. What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? It seems like they really want some of the glory here. They wanted a piece of the action so that they could have their names in lights. And then notice the last phrase of verse 1. And they accused him fiercely. The Hebrew word that's used there is the same word that we saw in the previous story about Baal contending for himself. And so now, after Gideon's been given this nickname, Jerubbaal, let him contend against Baal, the people of Israel, the people of Ephraim specifically, are contending against Gideon. So this is the first glimpse that we see of some little interpersonal, intertribal conflict that's going to escalate for the rest of the book of Judges. The people of Israel are really splintering and fracturing in this story. Don't want to take anything away from the victory here, but the details are there for us to see how ugly the people of Israel have become during this period of time. The period of the Judges is not a happy time. Well, Gideon shrewdly settles their their, uh, animosity against him. He kind of flatters them in verse 2. He said, what have I done now in comparison with you? And then he uses a metaphor here, a figure of speech. It's not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim. So the gleaning, literally, physically, is what happens after the harvest is completed. There's leftovers that are to be left on the ground, and poor people are allowed to come in and glean the leftovers. And so he's depicting what's just happened. So the main battle has, has been won. The main portion of the army has been defeated and the Ephraimites come in and they pick up the leftovers. They're part of the mop-up operation. And he says, you're gleaning what's normally just the leftovers is actually more significant than my victory over the main forces, the grape harvest of Abiezer." And Abiezar is his grandfather's name, his clan's name, the writes, and he's referring to himself here. And so he flatters them and he says, the little bit of leftover stuff that you did is more important than the work that I've done, because you killed the Midianite princes. And apparently Gideon didn't get any of the main leaders in the main part of the battle. And this satisfies them. Their anger subsides. They back off and they're happy because He's made them look good. And so they back off and the conflict is over for now. So, long story, long sermon. What do we get out of this? What do we draw out of this? It's not just a good war story, though it is that. Um, What do we draw from this? What are the pictures that we need to see for our own life here? Two things, primarily, I think, that we draw from this. We need to see God's grace on display and how God's grace strengthened Gideon, and so it does for us. Grace strengthens, and God is glorified. God gets all the glory. God gets all the credit. But we need to talk about grace for a moment. We need to think about that term. I've only been around for a month or so here. I've listened to lots of sermons, and I've listened to lots of conversations. I've gotten to talk with many of you, and I'm confident that grace is a subject of conversation around here. We talk about grace a lot. I think I can say that truthfully about this body, and that is a very good thing. We want to talk about God's grace a lot. But everywhere, everywhere, we want to be careful about how we think about grace when we talk about it, not only when we talk about it, but also when we read about it in the Scriptures. We can have a very fuzzy idea of grace. And the Bible has a very concrete, specific, particular understanding of grace, and I want us to line ourselves up with that as much as possible, and to think very carefully about what God's grace is, how it works, what it does. And so this is a good place to, to do that. So let's talk about what grace is. Let me give you just a basic definition. It's in your sermon notes. you've probably already seen it. And then answer the question: how does it strengthen? How does it strengthen? So here's how I define grace from the scriptures. God's grace is God's power exercised for the good of those who deserve only bad. God's grace is God's power exercised for the good of those who deserve only bad. One of the things that we need to think about every time we see the word grace... And when we use the word grace in conversation is the idea of deserving. It's a fundamental part of the meaning of the language in the scriptures. When the word's grace, or in the Old Testament, sometimes it's translated as favor. When these words are used, the idea of deserving is being talked about. And the issue is not just that we don't deserve, that we kind of have a neutral position before God, but it's actually that we deserve punishment. We deserve bad. And instead of getting what we deserve, God does good to us instead. That, my friends, is grace. So it's not merely God's posture toward us. I think that's how we talk about it sometimes. God's posture. He views us favorably. He views us graciously. And that is true. Remarkably true. But it's more than that. It's not merely God's posture toward people who deserve punishment. It's God's power at work to do good to those who deserve only bad. So the key to getting grace, the key to understanding grace and also to experience more grace is to readily admit that you deserve only God's wrath, God's anger, God's judgment. And when you do admit that, Necessarily, you are humbling yourself, and you are putting yourself in the posture of a receiver rather than a demander who claims rights, and you're ready to boast all the more in your weaknesses, as the Apostle Paul would say. We have a tendency to believe that our weaknesses, our failures, and our sins somehow limit what God is able to do in us and through us. That is a lie. That is not true. The story of Gideon teaches us the truth. There is no weakness in you, no sin in you, that ultimately stops God from accomplishing His purposes through you. Instead of benching Gideon because of his continued fear and his testing of God and his fundamental refusal to simply trust and obey, God patiently keeps working with Gideon until he changes him, equipping him for the task God has chosen him to do. You see, God isn't waiting for us to let Him work in our lives. God isn't sitting back hoping we'll get our acts together so that we can be useful to Him. God isn't simply waiting for us to surrender or yield to Him. If that were true, think about this, if that were true, we would be the ones in control. We would be the ones with the power. And we'd get the glory when we finally gave up our resistance. God is working in us, patiently, constantly, to transform us and to equip us for whatever He's called us to do, so that when we do finally obey God, He gets the glory for our success and our growth, and not us. So, let us then magnify grace... Let us magnify grace and thereby glorify God. When we magnify grace, when we draw attention to God's grace and our ill-deserving, God gets the glory. When we draw attention to and focus on God's grace toward us, we must humble ourselves and exalt Him. And so He gets all the credit all the glory for the good we experience. James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I like to paraphrase that thought like this. Whatever is rightly called good in this world comes from God. And given, given, That the world of humanity is fallen and broken, rebellious and sinful. No one deserves any good gifts from God. The concept of gift and deserving is not just a tension. It's a contradiction. God's grace in the gospel God's grace in sending His Son to live and die and rise from the dead to bring salvation to sinners in this world accomplishes more than simply giving believers a ticket to heaven after they die. The Apostle Paul writes in Titus 2, to 14 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us for good works. God's grace is what saves us in the first place, but it's also God's grace that trains us to live godly lives. It's the power that God uses to transform us into people who are zealous for good works. If you're not living the good life, and I mean by that a life that is pursuing, pleasing God, that's the good life according to the Scriptures. Whether you're a believer in Jesus or not this morning, if you're not living the good life, maybe you need to reflect more deeply on the grace of God in the Scriptures. The Bible teaches us, shows us, what God's grace is and what God does by grace in the life of His people The Son of God had to die to bring us to God. But the Son of God was willing to die to bring us to God. If you want to be in relationship with God, if you want to experience the truly good life as your Creator intends, then turn away from your life of doing things your own way and turn your life over to Jesus. He died to pay the penalty for sins He didn't commit, but that you and I do commit. He rose from the dead to ensure that you could live the truly good life empowered by His grace every step of the way. Trust Him. Follow Him. Obey Him. Would you pray with me toward that end? Father, we all want to live the good life. We want to experience the good that is possible even in a broken world. Possible only by Your power and Your work in people's lives. And so we ask, Father, that You would continue to pour out Your grace upon us. Fill us up with it. Help us to train our eyes upon Your grace so that we live differently. And let us give You the credit for everything good we see. Fill us up as a result of your grace with gratitude. Gratitude that comes out of our mouths in our conversations with each other, in our conversations with unbelievers. Help us to speak well of you, Father. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you have chosen freely, under no compulsion, to do good to us who deserve nothing but your wrath. Would you transform us by that same grace and would you help us to see it moment by moment, day by day and help us to become grateful people who depend on your grace, depend on the power of your spirit, applying that grace to our lives moment by moment. Help us to live good lives trusting Jesus for all that you have for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.